Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a balanced and strong foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you? I'm very well, Eric. So, uh, you know, it seems this past year I've been really peripatetic. I just got back from New Orleans uh, where I was there for the dedication of the last pavilion of the National World War II Museum, which is about liberation, uh, which I had I helped um, in a modest way design as a historical consultant. Um, and so thereby hangs a tail. Maybe we can get into that. But in fact, that, that leads me to begin by saying that uh, we'll, we'll get soon enough to the dismal stories of the wars around us. But could we start off perhaps with a little bit of high culture? You know, we've talked about books. Why don't we talk about teachers? Yeah, it's a really apropos because I spent not the past weekend, but the previous weekend up in uh, New York uh, on Roosevelt Island at the Cornell Tech Center, which is a joint venture of Cornell and the Technion in in Haifa. And Cornell, which as you know, is one of my alma maters, uh, has gotten some pretty bad press lately, uh, given the threats against Jewish students that were apparently lodged by another student now under arrest and charged. But this was a kind of different event this past weekend. It was a tribute to one of my three you know, great teachers in university, Walter Lefebvre, who was my undergraduate advisor uh, and was a very distinguished historian of American foreign relations. And what I think is uh, notable about him was he was a, a phenomenal teacher. Um, and a, uh, a very good scholar, but you know he came at things from a very different perspective than the one that I came to have. He was a, a student of the so-called Wisconsin School of Revisionist Diplomatic his- History that sought to put a, uh, an economic interpretation of uh, American foreign relations. It really was, in some ways, when you think about the big practitioners of this, uh, William Appleman Williams and um, Fred Harvey Harrington, who were the teachers at Wisconsin, who started this, and then Lefebvre and his two contemporaries, Tom McCormick and Lloyd Gardner, uh, one of whom is still alive, Lloyd Gardner, who is about 90 now and, and um, actually spoke at this conference. They really were, in some sense, the last of the Beardsian progressives. You know, they weren't so much Marxists, actually. Uh, they really came out of a, a Beardsian Marxist tradition, and many of them were from the. Mid- How you explain who, who Charles yeah, Beard Charles was? Beard was an, yeah, Charles, yeah, Charles Beard was an American historian in the early mid nineteenth century, who uh, wrote a book uh, about the economic sources of the Constitution, which sought to explain positions taken by the founders based on uh, economic interests. Again, it wasn't really Marxists uh, so much. Uh, although it had kind of a a Marxoid, I guess you would say, tone to it. But it wasn't so much about class interests as it was really about, you know, personal economic interests in terms of the Constitution. Beard actually also wrote a book essentially uh, decrying uh, Roosevelt's entrance into uh, World War II in 1940. And the point I was going to make was that, uh, the Wisconsin School, many of the protagonists, like Walt Lefebvre, who grew up in Indiana, and uh, Gardner, who I think came from Ohio, and McCormick, I can't remember where Tom McCormick came from, but they came from middle America, and they kind of represented a sort of progressive tradition, but which was also isolationist. Uh, you know, it was a progressive isolationist tradition that said the United States should not get involved in sort of the, you know, affairs of Europe and Asia because it'll taint American democracy. 
essentially. And it, it has some strong overtones today. The thing about Lefebvre as a teacher is, one, I think his views really evolved over time. He became much more focused on uh, other, not just intellect, not not just uh, economic, but also other intellectual forces that shaped American foreign policy. But he also was a, a model teacher in the sense that he brooked disagreement. For me, the thing that was great about his lectures and about his scholarship was, despite this sort of Beardsian, sort of economic uh, determinist sort of thing, he insisted on the primacy of individuals and personalities in shaping policy. Those were kind of intention, I think, in his own writing and teaching, but it it had a profound impact on on me. And he also was capable of uh, and and was a remarkable person because he was capable of uh, you know accepting disagreement, including from you know young undergraduate students without, you know, being defensive or disagreeable uh, about it. And, you know, I maintained a a long friendship with him after I left school. I just passed some of my correspondence over to one of his uh, former graduate students, a distinguished uh, diplomatic historian, Frank Castigliola, who just published a quite good biography of George Kennan, actually. Princeton University Press just published it. And Frank is, is working on a biography of Walt, and I passed my correspondence, had a chance to review the correspondence over a you know twenty year period, and you know it was uh, very affectionate, very warm. Uh, while I was in government, even though we disagreed about many policy things, and what was notable about this conference was he was a very modest person who absolutely did not want to have a uh, the typical sort of festschrift done in his honor, a festschrift being a a collection of essays by the former graduate and sometimes undergraduate students of a distinguished professor as a tribute to them at the end of their career. He didn't want a fest shrift, but after he passed, his students got together and said, we're going to do one kind of anyway. And uh, what's going to be in the book, which Cornell University Press will publish, is uh, a series of essays by his former students about each of his books, each of his major books, and kind of how well it has stood up over time and how scholarship has treated it over time and, and reflections and, you know, after years of have passed since the writing of the book. And then two panels by his former students who did not become academics. Um, you know, so I, I was on a panel as a, you know, a practitioner because Walter had a number of students who went on to become senior policymakers, um, you know, Paul Wolfowitz, Sandy Berger, Steve Hadley, uh, myself, Stephen Sostanovich, Dan Freed, uh, Paul Jones, who served on this panel, who was ambassador to Malaysia to Pakistan, Bob Einhorn, husband of our former dean at SAIS, Jessica Einhorn, um, one of your distinguished predecessors once removed as dean, um, and, and uh, Bob, of course, being a very... Uh, distinguished uh, practitioner in the area of, you know, nuclear nonproliferation. And we had a panel of, you know, the policymakers, uh, Derek Cholet, who has been nominated uh, to hold my former position as undersecretary of defense for policy was supposed to come uh, because of what's going on in Gaza. Derek was, you know, off on travel. And so Bob uh, sort of pinch hit for him, but it was a very, you know, sort of interesting uh, panel, and then there was a panel of people who went into finance and industry, including very senior executives of ExxonMobil and whatnot. So this was a person who, you know, had an enormous influence, sort of, on the historiography of American foreign relations, on a number of people who actually went into government and and tried to, you know, work in the field, as it were, and who also just set an enormous uh, personal example of the ability of people to, you know, argue and, you know, in good faith with one another, even if they held very, very different positions on the substance of policy. That's a, that's a wonderful tribute. Um, so the, the only one of that, the, those who you mentioned among that generation of faculty was that I ever met was Tom McCormick, 
who I encountered at Cornell during a summer program at, run by the Telluride Association. So this was uh, between my junior and senior years in high school. Um, you know, he was a warm enough character. The, the kind of, I, I will confess that the, uh, the tendentiousness of some of the arguments put me off. Although, you know, the thing that struck me is he, he was writing primarily about uh, American policy towards Latin America. And I think for some parts of that, you know, United Fruit does have a lot to, uh, to, to answer for. Although I don't think it, it captures everything. And in fact, you know, as I've been doing some reading around the topic of Teddy Roosevelt, which will be the, the next book after I finish flogging the, the Shakespeare book, you, know, you really see that our relationships with Latin America were always quite complicated. They were not simply adversarial. And there are a whole bunch of different themes that, that, that run through them. But I do remember reading uh, at that, during that summer seminar, Lefebvre's a book on was it the American Empire, the New Empire, uh, you know, which I think does, as I recall, really does bring out what you're saying. And he has this chapter on Henry Adams and Brooks Adams and you know some of the thinkers. But then there's this kind of I, I always I guess I thought of it as sort of soft economic determinism. I I'd always heard that he was a wonderful teacher and and that his attitude towards the United States was, and I think this may be you know, where some of these people diverged from the Marxoid um, view of things was always the sort of pained feeling that this country, you know, does does things it shouldn't do for because of uh, somewhat malign economic forces. I think it's fair to say that that basic argument has not held up particularly well. And it, and it like all arguments, it runs the um, of that kind that are sort of monocausal it, it it runs the risk of oversimplification. Although he, you know, he was clearly the best of that bunch. I mean, to go back to, I, I do want to talk about his teacher, and I'll, I'll mention once some of my own teachers. I I do think that 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 whole school of the, the uh, Beards, because it was both Charles Beard and his wife Mary Beard. Um, you know, it, it it does show you where how ideas can affect policy. I mean, they, these people were writing the. Uh, 1930s, um, the 1920s and 30s. And then, as you say, they were critical of the entry into the war. And it did help create an atmosphere in which, um, you know, you could have these efforts to restrict American exports of arms to, you know, the countries that were going to stand up to Hitler and to make people extremely uh, much warier than they ought to have been about American engagement in issues having to do with the security of Europe. And, you know, that that whole drift of interpretation is actually, and in many ways, I think it's actually more than problematic because what it tends to do is to kind of undermine interest in, let alone commitment to the ideas behind American founding and the ideas which drive American foreign policy for better or worse. And I'll say one last thing, and to some extent, this is a a complaint I often have about American historians, which is they're not particularly interested in, okay, well, how does this stack up to other countries around the world? It's a somewhat solipsistic view of things. None of this, by the way, is to detract in any way from your tribute to to Walter Lefebvre, which was beautiful. A couple of points there, Elliot, because you really, you know, I think cut right to the heart of a lot of this. One thing is, I think there is a tendency, it's not just in this school, but in general among American historians of foreign relations, to attribute far more uh, agency to the United States than it actually has in international affairs. Which is not to say that the United States is not, you know, incredibly powerful uh, and important in the international system and, and it, it you know, frankly, to get anything to happen in the international system, you know, the United States has to organize it. But there's a tendency of bad things happen to say, well, it must be that the United States is responsible for it. You know, and so yes. one one example that we've addressed on a past show when we had Ray Takei on to talk about his book uh, about the last Shah, uh, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago now, 
yes, the United States and the United Kingdom played some role in the 1953 overthrow of Mossadegh and the, you know, and the replacement of the Shah. But that role, I think, as Ray argues very powerfully in his book, was really pretty marginal. It was really Iranians, the Bazaris yeah. and the clerics who now don't, you know, have kind of want to whitewash that part of history because they they were very anti-Musadeh because he was a socialist and they were opposed to that. So, you know, it denies agency to, the, you know, other other actors. And, you know, my experience in government is we're never quite as powerful as we think we are and as, as you know, people attribute to us. Um, and I think that's one failing of, of the, uh, not just the Wisconsin school, but in general, I think American uh, diplomatic historians. The, the second thing I would say is I don't want to take away from the achievement of Beard and other historians in that progressive school. At the time that they wrote, there was really probably insufficient attention to the economic you know, elements uh, that you know, are important. You know, that, that was a contribution. And the way scholarship advances is by people introducing new considerations that have not previously been taken into account by going into new archives that have not yet been opened or have only recently been opened and bringing to bear, you know, that evidence. And then essentially that is a challenge to other scholars to then say, well, they got this part right, but here's the thing they didn't consider. And that's how scholarship, you know, advances. And I think, you know, Walt's book, New Empire, that you mentioned was one book that really enormously influenced me. And I only realized this, by the way, when I was at this conference, the other one was the origins of the new South by C van Woodward, who was one of my teachers at Yale. And that was also a product of, it was sort of one of the last great Beardsian books in American history written in the early 1950s that explained the end of reconstruction and the beginning of the industrialization of, of the South from a Beardsian perspective with the economic interest in. And again, that had been, you know, something that had not really been, um, you know, taken into to account before Woodward wrote it. And now others have, you know, uh, responded and written and, and in some cases revised Woodward's work. So some of that has to do with history. I guess the other thing I would say about Lefebvre in particular, you mentioned that the new empire, there's a lot of discussion of what he calls the intellectual preparation for American expansion in the late 19th century. And by the way, I think in the late 19th century, what he and Tom McCormick wrote about in his book, The China Market, about the role that Americans uh, attributed to, you know, the ability to sell things to China in the late 19th century, the whole, you know, old saw about, you know, if yeah, one, one inch to the shirt, one tails. inch to the shirt tails of every Chinaman, you know, wearing a cotton shirt and the mills in America will be running, you know, forever. So, look, that did have an impact, you know, on on uh, people thinking. Not the only thing; there were other factors as well. But it certainly was part of what drove, you know, the open door, which became an important idea in in American diplomacy. Not the only idea, however; there were others as well. But but as you say, in the New Empire, Walt does talk about the intellectual preparation. Talks about Henry Adams, Brooks Adams, his lecture on Brooks Adams is. Uh, was a classic that, you know, everybody who took his course at Cornell, and by the way, he taught on Saturday mornings to a full house, which I doubt could happen today. But but, but he has one other point that he uh, makes, which I'm still wrestling with, and which we, you know, have talked about on the show, which was what he identified as the Tocqueville problem, which was how do American governments get the American public, which is basically not very interested in international affairs, to support foreign policy. And Walter's view was a lot of the things we in government do to do that kind of undermined American democracy. He had that view that you talked about. But the problem he identified is a real one. And, you know, yeah. I, I wrestled with that a lot during my professional career. And, and you and I wrestled with it, you know, together in government. Yeah, and it's you know it's still very much with us. No, I I, I absolutely take that point. I think there, there's actually another way in which there's a contribution to to scholarship. It's not just that people modify your thesis and then carry it forward uh, with new information. That that is probably the dominant way. 
But what sometimes happens is people rediscover older books and say, you know, well, it's not complete, but actually this is an angle that we've been underplaying recently. So one thing I, I think about is, you know, I've dabbled in colonial history. And there, there was an historian named Herbert Osgood, who most people have never heard of because he, he was a rather dry writer. There's another, I think, Charles Andrews, who were the um, and the, the two of them first were very interested in what were the organizational administrative structures of the colonies. And Andrews was also particularly interested in the way in which um, this is, you know, the, the colonial story is really part of the British imperial story. Uh, and, you know, just how tightly connected the colonies were to, to Great Britain. Well, that, that stuff receded. But then it came back as now, except now people call it Atlantic history. That is to say, the idea that these are communities. The other thing, though, I, that that I'm just listening to you, um, uh, and, it, and it is wonderful to hear you say that. I mean, you and I were very fortunate to go uh, to university at a time when there were a lot of great teachers, and and I think it it's worth thinking a little bit about, uh, particularly in this day and age why that was the case. I mean, in my case, it was people like Samuel Huntington, who was not an inspired lecturer, but was a magnificent teacher who, who you know, his personal example was so, first, he was just a brilliant man. And, you know, I took uh, three things away from him. First, don't write the same book twice. Sam, Sam wrote a whole bunch of very different books, which is very challenging. That's not what most academics do. Secondly, he would always be willing to say, huh, I never thought of that. And this is a guy who was probably the most famous political scientist of his generation. And he was thirdly capable of saying, I've changed my mind. And but but there were others, you know, uh, James Q. Wilson, fantastic student of bureaucracy and of American politics. Uh, Richard Pipes, Russian historian who was a superb lecturer. I mean, just or Ernie May, Ernest May, another diplomatic historian, again, magnificent lecturer. But but. You know, as I step back and think about what was it that was so distinctive about that generation? Well, one thing, obviously, they'd all been touched one way or another by the war. And I think that had, uh, which had effects that kind of grounded them uh, in a way that sometimes contemporary academics are not. They were people of a very broad intellectual culture. So even, say, somebody with whom I disagreed a lot, Stanley Hoffman, was a uh, scholar of international relations and, you know, politically we were very, very far apart. You know, he, he got along with me because I liked French literature and we could talk about Balzac. Um, but then the third thing is, and I think this is really, you know, the thing that I, I, I personally worry about most. They were great teachers one way or another. And they, and they were great teachers because they were committed to teaching, not because they had particular techniques, although some of them did, uh, but because they thought of that as being at the center of what academics do and what the academic life is all about. Uh, now, there were except, you know, you don't want to over romanticize it. There were plenty of exceptions back then. But what, they were not from a period like today where the disciplines have become over professionalized, way too narrow, where you're responding to those incentives, where teaching is something that. You know, you do because you have to do, but you try to get out of it when you can. I mean, you, what's your reward for being a great professor? Your reward for being a great professor is you go to the dean and or the department chair and say, unless you cut my workload down to two courses a year, I'm going to take an offer from somewhere else. Among other things, these people were um, great academic citizens. You know, they they landed at Harvard. They figured, OK, I'm here for life and I'm I'm part of the establishment here, and I'm committed to, to serving it. They were institutionalists. And so I, I worry that we've lost a lot of that. I mean, I've, you know, I know in my own teaching career, I really tried to follow the models of behavior that people like um, Sam and Jim and others set um, in terms of how I treated students, uh, how hard I worked on them, the extent to which we'd invite them into our homes. Um, but, but I, you know, maybe it's just we're getting old, Eric. Uh, you know, we tend to think, well, when we were young, giants walked the earth. But, but still, I think there's 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 something to it, and I think it's it's absolutely appropriate to to pay tribute to uh, to those folks. We probably should talk about the world. Uh, 
Could we start with Ukraine? So um, I think there were, you know, there was this very, there've been a couple of things that have dropped. There's this very interesting paper by General Zeluzhny. There was an abbreviated version in The Economist. There was an interview with him. Uh, the abbreviated, if you go to The Economist online, if you get behind the paywall, you can actually access the full paper that he wrote, which is an extremely thoughtful, I think, analysis of where war is. Um, he's pretty, I, I don't think it's a pessimistic piece. I think it's a very realistic piece in which he says, look, there's not going to be a dazzling, big, beautiful breakthrough. I think that's the phrase he uses. Um, he talks about what they still need uh, to do, but it caused quite a kerfuffle. And it, it, I think it's pretty clear that President Zelensky was not happy about it. I have to say, it's not entirely clear to me why Zelensky, uh, Zelensky decided to to publish it. Um, it comes at a time when people are worried, I think, about the war um, stalemating. What do you make of all this, both the substance of what Zelensky said, but also the political kerfuffle around it? So a couple of points I would uh, make. One is, uh, you know, in addition to the Zelensky uh, interview and essay, there also was a Time article by Simon Schuster about Zelensky, which among other things, quoted uh, people, or, uh, you know, uh, blindly unattributed uh, aides of Zelensky as saying he's sort of trapped, he's deluded, you know, into thinking, you know, Ukraine can win, even though it's clear that this is a stalemate. And the combination of that story and the Zeluzhny piece, which some people I think have misinterpreted as saying the war is a stalemate, uh, I don't think that's what Zeluzhny meant, and I'll come back to that in a second. But it's led, you know, some people in good faith and some people in not so good faith are using this to say, look, the, you know, the war is stalemated. Ergo, there's no point in throwing good money after bad. We don't have to get, you know, as you know, Josh Hawley, we don't need to give the Ukrainians the $40 billion that the administration has asked for in, in the supplemental funding bill that they have put forward. Others have said, oh, well, what this means is we need to press the Ukrainians to negotiate with the Russians as if there were some negotiation actually to be had there. And that was reported, as I think I said, by NBC. I am told by fairly senior folks in the administration, you know, uh, from both the State Department and the White House, that this is, uh, as one of them put it to me, total BS. And really? Could you expand on that? Yeah, I, I, there. But the folks in the administration are saying we're not, we're, we're not telling the Ukrainians to negotiate because we don't think there's a negotiation to be had. We don't think Putin has any interest in it. In fact, our assessment is this war is going to run through, you know, 2024. You know, it's unlikely that either side is going to be able to mount major offensive action. So we need to keep the Ukrainians in the fight. Um, and we think that Putin's uh, end game is, you know, sometime early 2025 after he knows whether he's managed to get, you know, uh, a second Trump administration, you know, to to play with. Um, I think that's how they're thinking about this. And that brings me back to Zeluzhny. I don't I don't think Zeluzhny was saying the war is at, at a stalemate. What he was saying is the war is trending towards a stalemate. And he's very candid about the fact, and this is something you and I have talked about um, many times, that he anticipated that given the level of casualties that the Ukrainians have inflicted on Russia, that the Russians would have, uh, the military would have, you know, either collapsed or insisted on ending this war. Um, you know, in the last week as well, uh, the UK MOD intelligence folks have put out numbers that suggest, you know, 150,000 killed Russians, KIAs, and, and as many as perhaps 250,000 wounded. And given the very poor state of battlefield medicine in Russia right now, one has to assume some high percentage of those 250 are going to die uh, from their wounds, if not immediately, you know, pretty, pretty soon. I mean, to put it in perspective, the 150,000 killed, that is more than 10 times what the Russians lost in 20 years in Afghanistan. 
um, which they, you know, when they quit the field, right? And that's in, in basically, you know, under two years of combat in Ukraine. Um, Ukrainians have taken big losses too. I mean, but something on the order of 70,000 killed, but, you know, nothing like what the Russians have. Zaluzhny, in any event, uh, was saying, look, it turns out they can absorb more than we can. And oh, by the way, they have more manpower resources than we do. Although uh, that I think can, is, can, is mitigated by some factors, but therefore we have to win with technology. And he was talking about what the Ukrainians need in this war and it's air superiority. F-16s are only now showing up. The French F-16s are now being shipped over land into Ukraine. Appropriate training and, and a creation of a, a Ukrainian reserve force is one of the other things he talks about. Counter battery fires and the ability to fight more effectively in the electromagnetic spectrum, jamming, spoofing, um, you know, misdirection electronically of, of Russian systems, etc. Uh, an area where the Russians have invested a lot of money in the past, and we have much less so, although we've begun to do that in the United States in the last uh, few years and have, have begun to look more seriously at the electromagnetic spectrum, if not as a domain of warfare, at least an important part of warfare. So Zeluzhny really was creating a wish list for the, what he wants from the West in order to succeed in this fight, not throwing in the towel saying it, it's a stalemate in in, in my view. Then final point, and I'd be interested if you agree or disagree with that, on the manpower advantage. Yes, it is true the Russians, you know, grosso modo have, you know, a much larger population than uh, Ukraine. However, there are political inhibitions against a total national mobilization, which is why it hasn't occurred. Uh, it's why the Russians have been uh, you know, resorting to what Dara Massacote, who was at Rand and is now at Carnegie, uh, has called stealth mobilizations, you know, emptying the jails, uh, press ganging Central Asian guest workers uh, in Siberia into the military, uh, but not actually having a, you know, a full national mobilization of Russians. And that's because Putin's afraid to do it because of the political repercussions. So there's some mitigating factors that I think people who are, you know, kind of full of doom and gloom ought to take into account. I agree with all that. The, um, you know, so again, what, one of the things that's interesting about what the Russians are doing now is uh, they've decided to take the Wagner model and apply it across the board. So now if you get sentenced to prison, you are automatically enrolled as a potential conscript. So what, what Wagner uh, under uh, uh, Prigozhin, you know, was here. Here's the deal. You know, if you serve for six months, you get out of jail free. That what they're going to do is they're just going to draft their prison population. And, so, and not only does that go to your point that no, they don't want to draft the kids from Moscow and Petersburg and uh, Smolensk and places like that, but but there's actually a you know a deeper point. If you take a military and have it largely composed of criminals. Uh, you are severely limiting what that army can do and what that army can become. You know, the, these are people who are, they're violent. They are by nature undisciplined. They have, a lot of them have serious substance abuse problems. A lot of them probably have mental health issues of all sorts of kinds. So and they, uh, what do you do with people like that? Well, you resort to the most brutal kind of discipline, which is traditional in the Russian army. That, that, um, that model is not a great model for operating a modern military, particularly if you have lost, as I think the Russians seem to have lost, the ability for large-scale operational maneuver and thinking. You know, we've you've seen them. You know, both sides are doing these sort of localized offensives. The Russians have taken fantastic casualties outside Advinka, uh, and I think the Ukrainians are going to play it that way. So I think there there are limits to how far the Russians can go. The other, the other thing that I guess that strikes me is, you know, Zeluzhny is talking about this in a very realistic way as positional warfare, which is not quite the same thing as a stalemate. You know, and, and I think he's right that this is not going to be, there isn't going to be a 1940 or 1939 or 1941 style big armored breakthrough. That was, it was a mistake for us to even 
suggest that to them. Um, and of course, behind this is our inexcusable failure to deliver a lot more technology a lot faster. Uh, and and then, you know, there's another dimension to this as well. And I think a lot of the hand-wringing, including you know, from some of Ukraine's serious friends, it's neglecting to observe that there are actually multiple campaigns going on. So yes, the story on the this long uh, land front is not a good story. On the other hand, uh, the Ukrainians have now successfully waged a campaign which makes it almost impossible for the Russians to operate from uh, naval forces from Crimea. That is a major success. I think it's pretty clear that the Ukrainians, who have a very good technological base, as we've talked about, are developing, have developed the ability to strike into Russia without um, using our technology. So, for example, I am sure that the Russians are going to, you know, launch an awful attack on their electrical power, electrical system, power system during the winter. My guess is the Ukrainians, they won't be able to do as much to the Russians as the Russians do to them. On the other hand, they have a bigger array of targets to hit, you know, so I'm sure some of that will get paid back in time. So it's, it is a, and then there are other campaigns. There's an influence campaign. Uh, there's a kind of technological innovation campaign and, and so forth. What I don't understand though, and I don't know if you have a view on this, is why does Illusiony publish this? I mean, this it has the feel of a document that should be for internal consumption only, or if you know, if you want it to influence your counterparts in Western militaries, you might pass it to them maybe without Zeluzhny's name on it as a non-paper, as we used to say in government. Um, it, it certainly seems to have annoyed President Zelensky, or at least the people around him. So how do you read that dimension of it? I don't know. You know, I really, I don't know. As I said, I think there's an element of wish list here, you know, and I think he knows there's debate going on in the American Congress and it may be, you know, uh, intended to influence that. I'm not sure how sophisticated his understanding is of our debate. I don't know. But I will say that, you know, just in terms of the quality of the, I mean, it's in English too, the the paper, the quality of the paper was pretty impressive, I thought. Oh, absolutely. So, and if that gives people some comfort that at least the people who were supporting have some sense of what they're doing, you know, I think that's important. It also, I think, speaks to uh, the question of learning and adaptation, you know, under fire. The, the Ukrainians clearly have been doing this from the beginning. And his paper, I think, is yet another really in-depth example of how their leadership is open to ideas and taking it all on board. We heard a lot in the last couple of months about, well, the Russians are learning too, and they're, you know, they're using the armor and infantry much better. And this was at the beginning of the offensive around Avdika that you were hearing a lot of that. You know, this is a, you know, example of Russian learning. Now what you see in telegram channels and elsewhere is they're back to so-called meat attacks. And this is, you know, essentially throwing cannon fodder. You know, as you said, they're taking enormous losses, both of equipment and people, lots of evidence of at least minor mutinies going on in some of these, you know, uh, uh, military formations that the Russians have thrown together and also people being shot and killed or detained for not being willing to, uh, you know, be thrown, uh, uh, you know, into the meat grinder. Yeah. As my uh, second favorite uh, podcast, uh, Ukraine, the latest pointed out, there is something reassuring too, in knowing that the Ukrainian high command is honest with itself. Yes and honest with us. And, you know, that's, I wouldn't accuse the Russian high command of being the same thing. It's, but it is, by the way, I think a, a sign of weakness on Putin's part that he has not been willing to replace either Shoigu or Gerasimov, both of whom, you know, have, have not performed particularly well. Both of whom are loathed in lower levels of the Russian military. Right. Well, um, I guess the other big thing, of course, continues to be the uh, Israel-Gaza war. The Israelis have uh, 
now apparently isolated northern Gaza. They've been able to get from their border to the sea. That's not a particularly long distance. It's, I don't know, seven, ten miles, something like that. Uh, although I'm sure in very difficult circumstances. Um, maybe we can talk about a bit about that. The, the thing that strikes me about that so far is, first, we don't know exactly what's going on. I mean, I think the Israelis have kept pretty good operational security. The one thing which I, I may have said in an earlier uh, podcast, but I'll say it again, you know, when, when militaries interact with each other, you act, they actually learn a lot more about each other. And um, I think probably what's happening is, you know, with the Israelis now being on the ground, they're bringing to bear many other kinds of sensors. Um, and, you know, plus what you get when you capture people, when you capture material, computers and stuff like that. So as however good the picture was that they had before, it's probably better. The other thing I, I just wanted to mention um, was, I don't know if you saw, the Financial Times had a terrific profile of Yahya Sinwar. Yes, I was going to go there, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's fascinating and terrific. I mean, the horrific part is that this is a guy who, uh, when one of his followers got out of line, uh, the punishment was this guy had to kill his own brother by burying him alive with the you know, the final parts being done with a spoon. Yeah, very Saddam-like. So it, very Saddam-like. And, you know, the, the picture that's portrayed is a real de- malignant sociopath of the first order. But the thing that I found in, in a kind of a cold-blooded way as a, just a student of these things, you know, he, he had been a prisoner of the Israelis. Uh, the Israelis went to school on him. They thought they knew him and understood him. But of course, at the same time, he was going to school on the Israelis. He wouldn't speak fluent Hebrew and read all kinds of books by Israeli uh, political leaders, both left-wing and right-wing, historical as well as contemporary. Um, and he was able to fool them. And there is a larger story, I think, that will have to be told here, which is the story of the surprise of October 7th. And I, I don't, I think that that's a story which, like the Yom Kippur War, like 9-11, like Pearl Harbor, will have a lot of relevance for us going forward as well. Because the idea that you can ever escape um, strategic surprise is, um, is is wrong. There's one thing it sent me back to was the Ford by Thomas Schelling to Roberta Wolstetter's famous book um, on, on, on Pearl Harbor. Uh, was it Warring and Decision? I think it is. Yeah, which is now actually a lot of the, the historiography has actually turned a bit against uh, Roberta Wallstetter's interpretation. But it's still a very important book in the history of the you know, the debates around what, what exactly happened. Um, but Schelling has just, a, the forward is just brilliant in talking about all the different ways that simply because human beings are human beings, you're going to encounter strategic surprise. And it's a, it's a very sobering thought. Yeah, I, I think the Israelis, at least their minimal objective is going to be to kill Sinwar and Mohammed Daif, who appears to have been the chief planner. And oh, by the way, according to the FT profile, was Sinwar's uh, neighbor in Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza, where I think they both uh, originated from. I guess the question I have, Elliot, is how long the Israelis will have to do this. You know, um, I I think it's fair to say that since uh, Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, uh, well, 2006, really, because of the election in 2006 and then the coup in 2007, but, you know, uh, Israel has... Uh, fought a war in Lebanon against Hezbollah, and then a, a couple of military engagements, Operation Cast led when we were getting ready to leave government in 2008, um, and then, uh, you know, operate up to Operation Protective Edge, and then two years ago, another go-round with Hamas. And all of them have gone on until sort of, you know, the international community said, you know, basta, 
you know, enough, stop. In Lebanon, it was like 36 days. Here, you know, we're now kind of on week kind of three. And, you know, my sense is that Israel has been given, you know, a relatively long leash by the international community, longer than I would have thought. Uh, but how long will that go on? And how long do you think the Israelis need to accomplish what they're trying to do, which is to cripple Hamas's ability to rule Gaza and uh, its, you know, command and control apparatus and all the military infrastructure they've built underground and elsewhere? So I'll uh, imitate your uh, good example, uh, follow your good example and say, I don't know, <laughs> uh, but, but that, that's not entirely satisfactory. So how to think about this? The, I think the first thing is from the Israeli point of view, but also to some extent from the point of view of opinion where it matters, this is different. This is a different war than Protective Edge or uh, Protective Edge or Castled or any of these things. And that's because in a, in a very fundamental way, uh, the existential question feels like it's on the table again, that if the Israelis feel if they don't, if, you know, annihilate or come close to annihilating Hamas, that they'll come after them again in something even bigger and more horrible than October 7th, that it will encourage Hezbollah and Iran to think, well, maybe we should try our luck and see what we can do. Um, but also, it's the, you know, the sheer scale and barbarity of October 7th, just, I think, completely transformed the Israeli mindset. So um, this is not I think everybody has to start with the assumption the Israel, Israel you're dealing with now is very different from the Israel you dealt with before. The other thing that strikes me about this uh, in terms of, you know, how much running room they have, that yes, you see these demonstrations and terrible things on college campuses and attacks on uh, Jews in a number of different countries. Actually, though, the governments, I think, all say, let's give them running room. And and I think that they're, they're, those are for very good strategic reasons. And I mean, I think for Biden, there's some more or less sentimental ones. Uh, but I think, you know, the British are this way, the French are this way. Um, and perhaps most interestingly, I think Saudi Arabia and Egypt have said, the, or Jordan have said, they've said the bare minimum of things that they have to say and and nothing else. And I think it's, you know, for those regimes, Hamas and what Hamas grew out of, namely the Brotherhood, is they are as much threatened by these people as, um, as, as the Israelis are. So I think from a governmental point of view, there's more running room. I also think there's, again, The Economist had a, has just had an online piece on this, which is pretty good. You know, you got to discount a little bit for what you see on social media and even for what a demonstration looks like. If you look at where most people's opinion is about this, it's on the whole, it's pretty pro-Israeli. And I think that's in part because of the scale of October 7th. It won't last forever. But between those two things, I mean, this Israeli sense of the existential stakes and and public opinion being different than what what it was and governmental opinion being different than what it was, I think they've got more time. How much time do they need? God only knows. Um, I think the main thing is it it will pause at some point. But but what's going to happen, I, I suspect, it, it'll be very different than it was before. You know, in in recent last year or two, a couple of years, the you know the Netanyahu government encouraged Qatar to fund Hamas. They opened Gaza, you know, the gates so that we have, I think, 19,000 workers. They kept the water flowing. They kept the electricity going. And, you know, they'd retaliate for individual things, uh, particularly, you know, rockets fired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Pidge. But, but um, it wasn't a state of constant war. I think from here on out, this is constant war to obliterate Hamas. They will kill them overseas if they can get to them. I think any of those people who shows their face on the street, if the Israelis can locate them, they will kill them and it won't make a difference how many civilians are around them. Uh, if they try to train, if th think about it, if they try to train in the open, which they did and which the Israelis apparently monitored, they will kill them. If they try to have a public ceremony or whether it's a funeral or a parade or something like that, if the Israelis can detect it, they'll kill them. And 
that'll be a very different kind of world in which they're operating than, um, than the world that they've been operating in. Last thing I'll say is, as far as I can tell, the weight of effort that the Israelis have been putting into this is like three or four times previous uh, fighting. I think these, and I don't think the Israelis are simply bombing targets at random. I, I actually have pretty good reason to think that what they're doing is they've got a very sophisticated target generation process, which, by the way, includes a lot of artificial intelligence. And um, so I think the tempo is pretty intense. I think the, the Israelis are not going to talk too much about the damage that they've done to Hamas, and I, for sure Hamas is not going to talk about it. A very, very final thing I'll say. Really interesting that when uh, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, gave his speech, he was very, very careful to say, this was 100%, and I do mean 100%, a Palestinian operation. In other words, my, my fingerprints are not on this. Leave me alone. And that, I think, is indicative of something. Yes, although the Wall Street Journal had an interesting story about the um, inter- I think it was the Wall Street Journal, but the interrogation of, of some of the Hamas prisoners that indicates that the timing of this changed and, it, uh, and the Iranians did have their hands all over this. And that the timing was originally, you know, supposed to be uh, set back for around Passover, but apparently it was delayed. Not clear why, although plausibly could be connected to the negotiations with the Biden administration over the hostage release, uh, which postponed it. You know, so that's, you know, I think one thing. Um, to to your point about this is a very different Israel, and we're not going to see mowing the lawn anymore. Very interesting uh, op-ed in the uh, in the journal. This I'm sure was in the journal uh, by uh, Yossi Klein, Halavi, um, about how much October seventh changed changed Israel. And he's a relatively liberal figure, you know, in the in the oh, yeah. in the spectrum. He's, he's really one of the people to follow. By the way, he writes. Uh, you can see a lot of him in uh, Times of Israel. Yeah. He's a very very perceptive, self critical. Yeah. Um, Writer, and you're right. It, that that piece in the it was in the I think in the review yeah. section. So it's a long it's a long form yeah. piece. Um, it's a good yeah. Piece. So um, final point uh, I'll make, and then I want to just briefly turn to domestic politics before we kind of wrap wrap up, which is you mentioned that you know Hamas has its roots in the Brotherhood. Of course, so does Fatah, um, and you know there's obviously been competition between Hamas and, and Fatah, but they share a common, you know, ideological origin. And, you know, that ideological origin takes you back to the Mufti of, you know, Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was related to Yasser Arafat, I mean, family member, and also was essentially the spiritual father you know, of uh, Hamas and of Said Qutub and, and Hassan al-Banna and all these other folks. And, you know, this is a direct pipeline of, you know, racist, you know, Nazi anti-Semitism that has been poured into the veins, you know, of the Palestinian public. And I don't, you know, I think that story is being lost sight of a little bit here. There's a, there's a very good book by uh, Jeffrey Herf, H-E-R-F, who is a uh, who's at the University of Maryland? I think he's emeritus now, but it's a very very it's a fascinating um, uh, book. Uh, he's mainly a German historian, but it's a book about uh, German broadcasts into the Arab world uh, under the Nazis, and, and and then sort of tracing how you know a lot of the motifs then work their way into propaganda, and I think that's. You know, this is the Middle East, so you're dealing with layers and layers and layers of history. All right, well, let's talk about more cheerful things like, although not hugely more cheerful things like American domestic politics. Not usually cheerful at all. I mean, I am kind of flabbergasted at the weight of polling, which just shows that Biden is in serious trouble for reelection. And I know it's a year out and I know that polls are skewed, but I mean, the polls are, you know, they, they, seem to be showing a trend, you know, and the, the trend is not good f- for Biden. Um, 
so like you know how alarmed should i be you know how much you know should i you know there's very little hair on on my head anymore but like how much should it be of it should be on fire well my, you know my basic assumption eric for the last i don't know seven or eight years is uh you know you and i should always be in a state of barely suppressed hysteria <laughs> which is pretty much where we've been I, I who knows i mean i uh i know even less about american domestic politics i, I here's First, I think um, a lot of this is people thinking that Biden is old. I think another piece of it is, and I think the Democrats consistently underestimate this, that even when inflation seemed to abate, the inflation that average Americans felt day to day, like paying for food, was had gone up a lot. And so it, it's, you know, it really hurt. Uh, thirdly, I think, the, you know, I've always thought that the key to the Trump um, phenomenon was cultural politics. I don't think that's abated, and I think Biden made has made big mistakes by appeasing, uh, by appeasing some of the people on the left, including to some extent his own his own vice president. But I also think that a lot of the support for for Trump is kind of a protest vote, and I think there is some data to suggest that some of it may be soft. That is, if he ends up in jail. Um, or, or even if, you know, and maybe this is just my fantasizing, you know, Nikki Haley comes roaring in from the outside, they'd go with Nikki Haley. And, you know, that's, that's the, you know, that is the consummation devoutly to be wished that, um, cause she's basically a normal Republican, uh, with her issues. I get it. But, but, you know, you'd be back in normal range as opposed to dealing, you know, with a, something that's seriously wacko. So I'm not panicking And dangerous, yet, not just a, wacky, but really, really dangerous. I mean, the, the, yeah, the Washington, uh, the Washington uh, Post article about plans for the second term uh, really, really, you know, were under the headlines really under, you know, played it. You know, this is Trump's plans for retribution. This is Trump's plan for establishing a personal dictatorship in the United States. Yeah, I look. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. It just uh, maybe it's just for the sake of my own sanity. I don't want to, you know, completely give way um, uh, just yet. I'm just, you know, maybe I'm like Mr. Micawber, hoping that something will turn up. Can I? Can I? Maybe since we're coming to the end, can I wrap up with a um, something I mentioned at the very beginning, and that's the World War II Museum, please. So I'm really, I've enjoyed enormously being associated with that institution. It's in New Orleans. It grew out of uh, the work of Stephen Ambrose, um, well-known historian. Also PhD from the University of Wisconsin, by the way, under, uh, under oh, William really? Hesseltine. Well, that's right. He actually started out sort of yeah. on the left and then he moved a bit. But he had been working on a biography of Eisenhower. And Eisenhower said, well, have you ever met Andrew Higgins? Knowing that Ambrose was in New Orleans, he said, no, who's he? And Eisenhower said, you got to meet him. He's the most, he, he's the guy who won the war for us. Ambrose went, what? Well, Higgins, Andrew Higgins was the guy who invented the Higgins boat, which is the basic model for the landing craft that were used at Normandy's of infantry landing craft. And um, his factories built 15,000 of those things. Interestingly enough, this is in New Orleans uh, during World War II. One of the things he was noted for was paying blacks and women the same as white men for doing the same job. So if you were a foreman, it didn't make a difference if you were black or white, male or female, you got the same salary. And um, this, the, the, interestingly, the black community in New Orleans remembers this uh, because he, he lifted a lot of people into the middle class. Well, what began as a D-Day museum to celebrate Higgins has really become a, a sprawling World War II museum. I, I absolutely urge people to uh, visit it, I think particularly if you have teenage kids, because you know so much of what kept us going during the Cold War was our memory of World War II. Um, the final pavilion, which they dedicated, they, they built a series of seven buildings is about liberation and what does the war mean? And the um, 
that you know the pieces that I fought for, and I'm I'm glad I was glad to see them there. Is first they really emphasized the four freedoms from Roosevelt's speech in January 1941, where he says, "Look, what we're engaged in is a struggle about freedom from want, freedom from of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom from fear." And you know, it's very that was a very simple list. It was very powerful at the time. I think it remains so. But the other thing, and this I think is the most important thing, that um, that the, the your visit to the museum, which can easily go on for two days, uh, and has all the high tech but also fantastic artifacts, is not intended to end simply with a celebration, but to end with a challenge. Um, you know, there's that wonderful line from John F. Kennedy's inaugural about the torches passed to a new generation, and that's actually on the on the Four Freedoms Medal, which was issued at the end of the war. There's a torch, and I I think that's a it's a very powerful message, particularly now that the memory of the direct memory of World War II is almost gone, and even people like us, you know, and parents who've been in the war, um, you know, we're going to be yeah, gone we're, too. We're aging you know. out. Yeah, we're aging we're aging out, and uh, I think it's just very very powerful to get teenagers thinking about okay, that generation faced an enormous challenge as the world was getting very dark. Well, you may face a, a different kind of challenge, but but in many ways a similar one. So uh, go to New Orleans, eat lots of beignets, uh, and uh, go visit the uh, National World War II Museum. Well, Elliot, you met the challenge because we started with something uplifting, and then against all odds, you managed to end us on an uplifting note. So thank you for that. That's terrific. And that will have to do for this episode of Shield of the Republic, and we'll be back next week. 